You tried to creep in like a creeper from Jude. Okay. Yeah, by the way, the Hispanic church does not have enough food for all of us. We're super bummed about that. This church, guys, like every other church, is a church full of sinners. Save sinners, redeem sinners, but sinners nonetheless. The Spirit of God has certainly brought us together and made us a family. But even as family members, we can tend to treat each other poorly. Even the best of us, even me. It's not for nothing that Paul tells the Galatian Christians not to bite and devour one another. It's interesting that when Paul is addressing the Galatians and he is trying to teach them how they ought to treat one another and love for one another, he uses language that's more typical of beasts than it would be of human beings. Don't bite and devour each other. Don't act like a pack of ravenous wolves. The New Testament is full of commands for us Christians on how we are supposed to live and relate to one another. If you go through, there's like some dozens of commands for one another. Listen to one another, be patient with one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, gather with one another, love one another. But if we're being honest, sometimes it feels like we can be at our wit's end with one another. The same brother in the church has invaded your personal space for the 14,000th time. Russell drops his phone in the middle of my talk, and he can't pick it up because his neck is broken. The sister that you thought you were getting close to said something in a text message that kind of felt a little snarky, and now you're not really sure if things are weird between you guys when you see each other after service. You tried not to get offended, but it's hard. You should know that this church is not abnormal. There's nothing weird about our church that we as sinners, when we are in close proximity, experience friction as we try to do life together. But not every church knows how to deal with that friction. Some churches become rumor mills and gossip factories. Some churches are very polite and very friendly on Sunday mornings but they have no real community outside of the time that they happen to see each other before or after the service. Some churches develop cliques. I'm not entirely even opposed to cliques. I think they're unavoidable, but cliques that have no ability to enter or leave those cliques are very dangerous. My prayer is that God would give this church the tools to do what the Bible tells us to do as we try to live this life together as we try to make it to heaven together, as we try to love one another, forgive one another, and not give up on one another. With that in mind, I want to kind of give you a grid through which you can think of relationships in the life of this church. The grid is gospel safety time. Gospel safety time. Uh, These three categories came from a guy named Ray Ortland. He's a pastor up in Tennessee. But more than that, I think they come from God's word. It's just the result of a man spending a lot of time looking at God's Word, thinking well about God's Word, and how to apply God's Word to the life in the church. And I pray that this language of gospel safety time would become common in the life of this church. I pray that it becomes a part of our DNA. So what do I mean when I say gospel safety time? Let's take the first one, gospel. Quite simply, I mean this. The way that we relate to one another should be shaped how God relates to us in the gospel. The way that we relate to one another should be shaped by the way that God relates to us in the gospel. 
When we're studying through the book of Philippians, we saw that there was division, disunity in the life of the Philippian church. And Paul, being the good shepherd that he is, he loves this church very much. He writes to them to try to fix this disunity. And when he goes about doing that, he doesn't simply up the volume and say, stop it, and then say, stop it louder. You know, he actually tries to give them a framework through which to fix their disunity. And that framework is pointing them to Jesus Christ. It's holding up the example of the way that God, through Jesus Christ, has treated us in the gospel. And then he says, you do likewise. Listen to this from Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Well, that's impossible. Thanks, Paul. How do you want me to do that? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, impossible. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So how does Paul get the Philippians to grow in humility towards one another? He holds up the example of Jesus Christ's humility and he says, you imitate Jesus Christ. Look at the way that God through Jesus has dealt with you in the gospel and you try to imitate that. In the life of this church, we need to have gospel categories for how we relate to one another. That means, as we saw this morning, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. First of all, in creation, we need to see that God has created us in his image. And that means that we all have inherent value, dignity, and worth. That's the first thought that should come to our mind when we see each other. Whether we come from a background of crime or come from a background of luxury. Whether we're black or white or Filipino. Whether we're rich or poor or smart or dumb. Or handsome, you know, not handsome. This is the first thing that should characterize the way that we relate to one another. We're created in the image of God. But the fact that we're fallen also means that we're sinners. And so we should have that framework in mind as we relate to one another. It should never catch anybody in this church off guard if somebody one day sins against them, including your elders. It's probably already happened, and I hope it didn't catch you off guard. But more than that, the gospel says that not just that we're sinners, but it also says that we're redeemed sinners. And as redeemed sinners, we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us, empowering us to put sin to death. So if that's true, we should expect to be sinned against, but we should also expect for people to repent of their sins and to turn away from their sins. And we shouldn't merely be okay with people paying lip service about sin, but also trying to put sin to death. Colossians 3 says that we consider our flesh as good as dead. Galatians 5 says that our old desires have been crucified with Jesus. Romans 6 says that we no longer have to be slaves to sin. Romans 18 says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Well, how are we supposed to put this sin to death? The Bible tells us by the power of the gospel. In Romans, Galatians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter, and a whole bunch of other places, places, the answer to how we are supposed to put sin to death and live according to the power of the Spirit in the life of the church is to consider the reality of who we are in Christ. Over and over again, he says, if you have been buried with Christ and raised with Christ, you should live like Christ. But the gospel also says that none of us have complete victory this side of heaven. Even Paul, after in Philippians, listing his you know, list of successes says, you know, and I count all that as rubbish. And by the way, it's not like I've arrived. 
the fighting sin will never stop until Jesus calls us home to be with him. But God is patient with us as we fight. And we should be patient with each other. In summary, if God has forgiven us, we should forgive each other. If God has been patient with us, we should be patient with each other. If God has been merciful to us, we should be merciful to each other. If God has been generous to us, we should be generous to each other. If God has been wise and discerning with us, we should be wise and discerning with each other. If God requires holiness from us, we should require holiness from each other. And that should lead us into safety. Point number two, safety. If you're anything like me, you've probably heard a thousand stories about people not feeling safe in the church. Uh, Some of that is because millennials have a language of never feeling safe anywhere unless all of their feelings are protected. But part of it is genuinely because the church has hurt people, right? I've been hurt by the church. If I had to guess, I'd say that most of these churches don't feel like safe places because they don't relate to one another through this gospel framework that we see over and over again in Scripture. The gospel framework creates safety in our relationships. And let me give you a couple ways that that happens. Way number one, the gospel gives us safety because of our covenant with one another, right? And because of our security and covenant with Jesus Christ. I gave a pocket-sized definition of covenant at least 15 times in the last three weeks Somebody give it to me. Go. Pocket-sized definition of covenant. Russell? Yes, relationship grounded or based in a promise, right? So that means that, you know, when me and Amber fight and she doesn't seem as cute and lovely as she did five minutes ago, our relationship is still strong because it wasn't grounded in how cute and lovely she looks. It's grounded in the fact that we promise to love one another through the good and the bad. Well, we have that same relationship with God. He's entered into a covenant with us, purchased by His blood, And those who are secured in this new covenant are secure because God promises that he puts his spirit in us and causes us to walk according to his ways. That's very different than the old covenant. That's the uniqueness of the new covenant. But we also have a covenant with one another. When you become a member of this church, you agree to live as a covenant member of this body. And there's safety in that because we have a relationship with one another that's grounded in a promise that we're not going to give up on one another. That means that you're free to tell me that you're struggling. You're free to tell me that you're depressed. You're free to tell me that you don't feel loved. Whatever it is, you're free to talk about it. And I should be free to say the same thing to you. Because we have promised not to give up on one another. Why? Because God has promised not to give up on us. Number two, there is safety because we don't expect anyone in this church to be perfect. That's pretty much self-explanatory. I already talked about this with sin. Nobody in here is going to sin one day or say something one day that's really going to catch us off guard and shock us and be like, damn, man, I thought you were the one. I thought you were the one for sure who was never going to mess up. No, that's just never going to happen. Number three, there's safety because we expect confession, confession of sins to be a normal part of our lives. You see this in verses like James 5.16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. It's a command. From God to you, you are supposed to, Cody, tell Will or Chance or BJ or Sean or Amber or Allison about your sins. In the book of Acts, we see that right as the church is formed, as Luke is describing what's going on in the church, he says, also many of those who are now believers have come confessing and divulging their practices. Remember this morning how we talked about exposing the works of darkness to the light? That's what you see as God's people calls himself, 
As God calls some people out of the darkness and into the light, they come divulging all of their dark deeds to the light. It should just be normal in the life of this church for us to say, yeah, you know what, man? I sinned. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Help me. Number four, there's safety because we believe that there really is hope for us to kill sin. If there was no hope that we could actually put sin to death in our lives, I could imagine that it would feel suffocating. We would just be in an endless cycle of confessing our sin over and over and over and over and over and over again. But because the Spirit of God lives in us and actually gives us the ability to walk in newness of life, we can be brave in confessing our sin, knowing that one of the sweetest promises from God to us is that we can actually kill it. One last note on safety. I want to be very careful here. I'm talking a lot about how we should be free to confess our sin, to work through our sin, to talk about our sin. The church should be a safe place to do those sorts of things. But brothers and sisters, the church is not a safe place for sin. That's a very big difference. Sin is not safe in this church. We will seek it out and we will eradicate it by any means necessary. That's not the same thing as being against you. Being against sin means It may feel like it's against you at times, but it's not. Sin is keeping you from your ultimate joy. Sin is keeping you from happiness. Sin is keeping you from experiencing the fullness of your walk with Jesus Christ. It's keeping me from the same thing. And so we promise to try to kill sin together in the life of this church. So in summary, we can relate to each other, to the glory of God when we feel safe to do so. And a rich understanding of how to apply the gospel to our lives makes us feel safe. Which leads us to the third point, time. The gospel framework allows us to feel safe, but we have to have time to grow in that safety. You are not going to be made perfect tomorrow. It takes time. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let's just go ahead and turn there if you've got your Bibles. We're turning there because apparently I didn't copy and paste it. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is Paul talking about how Moses beheld the glory of of the Lord in the face of Moses and how under the new covenant that veil is done away with. And now we, through looking at Jesus Christ, can behold the fullness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we look at Jesus, we are being transformed to become more like Jesus. But you see there that language is a language of process. Go over to Romans 8.29. Flip back a little bit. Flip back. Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This passage, Romans 8, 28-31, is called the golden chain of salvation. Because everything that Paul talks about, he talks about as if it's done, it's final. Right? You have been called, you have been, cho- excuse me, you have been foreknown, you've been called, you've been pre... Oh, man. Yeah, there it is. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. The only language there that carries the language of process is the language of sanctification. 
And it's just because sanctification is a process. It's a gradual process. Consider your own life. Consider where you are now compared to where you were two months ago. Consider where you are now compared to where you were two years ago. Consider where you are now compared to where you were ten years ago. Some of you may be thinking, man, I'm actually kind of in a low place right now. That's okay. It's not okay to stay there. But I think for a lot of people in this room, if we ask ourselves how we're doing now compared to how we do what we're doing before, it's obvious that the Spirit has been gradually working in our lives to make us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes there's an explosion of growth in Christ-likeness. Sometimes the change happens so slow, you just can't even see it. It's like watching the grass grow. Although, watching my grass grow, I feel like I actually can see it. It happens every three days. I want to be taking up an offering to help pay for gas for my riding lawnmower after this. Consider how gradually Christ is working on you and on your life. He doesn't point out every one of your sins, every one of your flaws, every one of your weaknesses, every one of your stupidities or immaturities the moment you get saved. He spends weeks, months, years, decades, an entire lifetime molding you into his image. So be patient with your brothers and sisters. When he or she does that thing that he or she always does that drives you crazy, be patient. Imagine how God must feel with you as he has been patient with you as you've committed the same sin for the 10 millionth time. When Paul tells the Colossians to bear with one another, he doesn't mean, you know, just endure the funk of each other. He means something more like this is a process, a long process, and the only way that we'll make it through this without killing each other is if we forgive one another as Jesus makes us progressively more holy. We don't endure with each other while we stay where we are. We endure with each other as Christ makes us more like himself. That's the only hope that we have in enduring with one another. So, brothers and sisters, treat one another the way that God has treated you in the gospel. If you do this, this church will be a safe place to pursue God and to kill sin. And in time, we will all look more like Jesus to reflect his glory to a lost and dying world. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that gospel safety time would be always on our minds, that this framework